The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Now, getting back to what I was saying about us, the Quantrills, being liberals, I meant that we're liberals in the same tradition as the president. Did I tell you we voted for him? Yes. When I say liberal, of course, I don't mean left-wingers or anything like that. I mean, you know, we're for civil rights. Yes. Sit down. The Bullocks next door, real right-wingers. American flag up every day. Real fascists. Ought to be gassed. You know the type. Oh, yes. Oh. Brother, the fight they put up that I told them. These are liberal times. Hey, Dad, you want the Magnum 357 in the house? Darn it, Bing, I told you not to play around with my guns. No, I do not want that in the house. That is my car gun. My house gun is already in the house. Now, put that right back in the glove compartment, and don't let me catch you fooling with my guns again. I'm sorry, Dad. Thursday, October 9th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today, the last show before the Canadian election, so certainly we'll be looking at the election before we finish off the show later on today. And of course we'll be talking about what's happening in the markets again. Uh, two subjects we dealt with on two past shows, but I think it's uh, time to do a few more commenta- commentaries on them. But in addition to that, we want to talk about everything you wanted to know about sex show licensing in on London, Ontario, and we also want to talk about school boards and guns. But first, uh, my apology to those of you who tuned in to see me on Tuesday's CTS broadcast of Viewpoints on, on television. The show's host, Christine Williams, wasn't apparently feeling well that day, and I've now been rescheduled to October 28th. And that's a bit too bad, because I just received the subject matter uh, the night before, and we would have been talking about the economy and the banking meltdown and all that stuff. But the good news is that Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever got my subjects and will be appearing on today's Viewpoints at uh, 2 p.m. on the same show. That's Channel 16 on cable if you've got Rogers here in London. It's live, and you can call in if you like. But first, uh, and by the way, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in the conversation today. And our first subject, of course, is I want to talk a bit about school boards and guns, and I have a question for you. I want to ask you this. Why is it wrong for a good person to own or to possess a gun? Now, I ask this question because, of course, of a recent issue that hit the London School Board, Thames Valley District School Board specifically, and more specifically, uh, its education director, Bill Tucker, when he turned down a $5,000 donation offer from the East Elgin Gun Club that was offered to them. I think this happened about a month ago now. Gun Club donation to school shot down, reads the London Free Press article on September 24th by Kate Dubinsky. Quote, guns and schools don't mix, period. 
That's why students at East Elgin Secondary School in Aylmer aren't allowed to accept the $5,000 offer from the East Elgin Sportsman Association, says the director of the Thames Valley District School Board. I do not feel comfortable accepting money from any organization associated with guns, Bill Tucker said, end quote. Now, that one stopped me cold right away because apparently he does accept money from government, and government has a monopoly on the use of force, and government has more guns than any other single organization or or individual in our society. And that government uses those guns to pay for the students in his school system. Even people who don't have children in the school system are being forced by those same government guns to hand their money over to the school system. And this is the money that he gladly and unquestionably accepts. So my first message I got out of this is that forced payment is good, voluntary donations are bad. Now, it's not about guns, since both sources of his money are associated, in this case, with guns. I mean, how can you, how can you deny that? But there's a greater philosophical irony behind all of this, I think. That I think it's the reason the gun club offered the school donation was because of some of the students uh, from that school volunteered their time to the gun club as part of the 40 hours of community service that students are forced to serve to prove that they've got the smarts to get their diplomas, eh? Apparently, the kids did such a great job at the gun club its owners thought they'd reward them by offering the school a donation. Many of the school's parents were outraged, but Tucker, quote, firm on gun club gift, read the London Free Press headline on the following day, September 25th, also by Kate Dubinsky. Quote, amid calls for his resignation from angry parents and others, the area public school board's education director is sticking to his guns. Tucker isn't backing down, saying this week's school shooting in Finland and a gun scare in Regina prove his points that guns and schools don't mix. My decision isn't a reflection of the sports club or the gun club. It's just that guns don't go with schools. End quote. Now, His decision was, in turn, supported by Peggy Sattler, chair of the Thames Valley School Board, who wrote in a London Free Press editorial, and I quote, In declining the donation from the East Elgin handgun competition, the director was carrying out his first and fundamental responsibility, to provide for the safety and welfare of the students, end quote. (laughs) Now, just just think about that. How stupid is that? How does $5,000 threaten the safety and welfare of students? Like, do these dollars shoot bullets? Is that what's going on here? You know, when I hear people who are supposedly in charge of our education system speak in such inaccurate and irrational terms, I fear for the safety of our children. We will not condone, she says in the article, fundraising activities for schools that normalize handguns as nothing more than sport equipment. While handguns are legal, they are also lethal in the wrong hands. Well, you know, I almost agree with her on there. Handguns should also be viewed as an instrument of self-defense. That's what, where the problem comes in. She, she says Canada ranks fifth among industrialized countries in the rate of firearm deaths among children under age 14. Increasingly, gun violence among young people is moving into schools. Now, what? Gun violence in schools? How is this possible given that the schools and gun philosophy that they have that they don't mix. The board will not sanction the use of handguns to raise money for schools, writes Sattler. No, but they'll sanction the use of the government's methods of persuasion. 
But, here, you know, despite this evidence that Tucker's viewpoint was supported by the board, I nevertheless saw Joe Ballinger in the, in the editorial October 1st, 2008, London Free Press, uh, wrote an editorial titled, Tucker Out of Line, Imposing Own View, in which he wrote, quote, Tucker asserted guns in schools don't mix, stating I do not feel comfortable accepting money from any organization associated with guns. Generally, that wouldn't bother me, except the part that begins with I, uh, says Belanger. Tucker is a public servant, imposing his private views, values, and belief system on a public school board and its students and parents who are constantly being asked to dole out cash for essential supplies, trips, fundraisers, projects, and causes, all politically correct, of course. What Tucker was really saying is that it's politically incorrect for him to accept the money from a gun club, even though its members are the parents of students and the people our children depend on to learn about guns. Is it now open season for teachers and bureaucrats to impose their own value and belief systems on students and society? I would pr be proud, indeed thrilled, to accept that $5,000 donation from the East Elgin Gun Club, uh, writes, um, writes the editorial writer there, Joe Belanger. Now, while I agree with his sentiment, okay, I totally agree with the sentiment, as he expressed it in this article, and I certainly share cynicism towards political correctness, but I don't agree with his fundamental argument, and I think it undermines his own, the point he's trying to make. I mean, if the views expressed by Tucker, quote, wouldn't bother me except of the part that begins with I, well, then why bother writing this article in the first place? Is that the point he's trying to make, that, that, you know, like that a bad idea is acceptable if a majority supports it, but unacceptable to impose on others if it's a minority or if individuals support it? You know, that's one of the first questions, and I think that if you answer that objectively, you have to say, no, whatever's right is right, no matter who supports it. Now, I also disagree with the statement that Tucker's imposing his private views and values even if those views might be the values he personally holds. It's, it's true that he made a decision without holding a vote on the issue, but he did in every way, I think, represent the views of the school board itself, and it's perfectly consistent with what he did. If the same views, you know, were all being imposed by a majority and the board had voted on it, would that make it all better? You know, not, not from where I sit, that's for sure. In fact, I would argue that the school board's position is completely irrational and completely counterproductive towards the very goals the board members claim they support, safer schools and a safer society. Now, I listened to Mr. Tucker on a radio interview, and in that interview, he very correctly and properly described the East Elgin Gun Club as a very responsible association, praised the people associated with it, and in general had nothing bad to say about the club or its patrons or its activities. Only positive things, so good for him on that. But how does he reward all of this virtuous behavior? Well, by saying he cannot be associated with such groups or such people. I cannot support any link between schools and guns. It's a bigger issue than just monetary, and that this is a social issue, he says on the radio. You know, far from making schools a safer place by promoting, what do you call it, zero-tolerance policy about guns, I think our schools are fostering a completely wrong attitude, or, attitude towards both uh, guns and violence. Every school board official I've heard speak publicly on this subject says the same things. It's not just the ideas of Tucker, okay? Here's what's wrong with the zero-tolerance approach. I've got basically six main points. And the first one is this. Zero-tolerance is just another way of saying 100% intolerance. 
And this leaves no room for virtue, no room for reason, no room for justice, okay? Just 100% intolerance. Screw you. That's it. Done. Those are two of the things that you'll get up, you know, that you'll end up getting zero of if you go with zero tolerance. The second thing is that the this whole no guns attitude is psychologically destructive. And it equates good with evil by blaming all evil actions, but interestingly enough, never the good ones, think about that, on an object, you know, be it a gun or a book or a TV show or a video game, all the ridiculous things that they try to tell us are the things that cause us to act the way we act. So this teaches kids that they're not responsible for their own actions, doesn't it? And that when things go wrong, you know, you can always blame something else. Um, you know, oh, I, I did that because the gun was available to me. Oh, I decided to blow up that whatever because I watched it on a video game or whatever. You know, it's, it's absurd. And to even accept such reasoning is to divorce responsibility from the individual. And the third thing is that this whole argument that a society, quote, without guns, end quote, is safer than one in which gun ownership is legally permitted is factually and statistically false. It just ain't so, folks. Never has been, never will be. I've been watching this issue for 20, 25 years. By the way, I don't own a gun, never have owned a gun. I think I have a right to own one, but I don't have a need for one. And when, when I was a kid, I used to shoot around with pellet guns and never had any untoward incidents occur. But the point is that this is just not true, and if you want to check that out, check some of the past shows we've done on this where you can hear all kinds of people talking about it. I mean, outside of sporting events, guns serve an essential purpose of self-defense and, of course, for going after the bad guys. So you can check our archives for the specifics on this, and that's at www, of course, uh, justrightmedia.org. And you can see there uh, that we've covered this whole issue in detail it's about, about the stats and the facts, you know. Uh, crime rates dropped precipitously in U.S. states where they rescinded gun control laws in favor of concealed weapon laws. It went completely the other way. To say nothing of the testimony of criminals themselves, as we aired in, in a John Stossel piece. These are guys that went to jail for gun crimes. And if there's one thing they like, it's gun control laws. And they made that very clear. Number four. The lesson that must be taught about guns and weapons is, is not that they must be feared, but that they must be respected and certainly not abhorred and vilified the way they're doing now. If we incur such attitudes towards guns, then where are we going to get our future soldiers and where are we going to get our future police officers? You know, what's their psychology going to be like if they've grown up from day one thinking that this weapon they're carrying is some, uh, you know, super magic wand or something like this? If, if you want to glorify a gun, that's how you do it. You, you make it a, a, a banned thing, you know? Is it any wonder we have such uh, anti-war sentiment in this country even when our enemies are threatening us to our face? Uh, you know, and then if you have this kind of gun attitude, the only people that own guns, they're going to be the ones, that's the elite. They're the ones that will have the power. Now, of course, uh, number five, I touched on briefly in another context with zero tolerance, but again, let's stress the justice part. Zero tolerance means no justice. What, you know, we have to punish a good person along with the bad person, and the lesson learned is that morality doesn't matter, that good character and behavior don't matter, only being politically correct matters. And that's the exact message that Tucker sent after praising people for being virtuous and then saying he cannot associate with them. I mean, talk about a scarlet letter. <laughs> I think it's a moral obscenity, actually. Also, zero tolerance, my sixth point on guns, uh, also fails to make a distinction between the initiation of force and the defensive use of force, once again, equating good with evil. 
Violence, of course, occurs in any physical clash between good and evil, and to treat each side with equal contempt dispenses with the, with the whole concept of justice entirely. So, you know, I return to my original question, I guess. Why is it wrong for a good person to own or possess a gun? And the answer, of course, it, is, it, it isn't wrong. What is wrong is for the government to take it away from him if he hasn't committed any kind of crime or anything like that. It seem, seems to me to be an obvious thing, and I think it's a shame what's going on in our schools. Our schools seem to be teaching terror for everything from guns to the weather, and it's just uh, it's starting to get to me too, folks. But right now I think we'll have to take a break for a little smile, and we come back on the other side, we'll have a bigger smile when we hear about all the escapades going on with London sex show charges that occurred at the, at the Free Press, or at the Free Press, at the uh, Western Fair a little while ago. We'll be back on the other side of this brief break. No, no, like toy guns, finger guns. A round of applause. How many people like finger guns with a five-year-old, yeah? Okay, I got a question for you. Why is it when you play finger guns with a five-year-old, your finger always seems to be malfunctioning? <laughs> I'm running around the house. Bang, bang! Didn't get me, didn't get me. Bang, bang, miss me, you miss me. I even had him cornered in a closet once. <laughs> bang, bang! Didn't get me, didn't get me. <laughs> so I pistol whipped him. I <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I'll quit your crying. Let's play checkers. <laughs> you can be black. Match your eye. Come on, gentlemen. <laughs> I want to make something clear right from the get-go. Uh, I run a pretty clean show out here. Uh, not a lot of profanity or vulgarity. Um, I do mention the word penis, though. Uh, but that's as far as it goes. Good, good. That sounds good. All right, so, uh, who'd like to see my penis by round of applause? How many people? Uh, right there. Thank you, sir. Uh, let's... Very nice of you. Uh, You'd almost think that's exactly what was going on at the Western Fair this past little while when the, when the, the sex show, everything you wanted to know about sex show, came to uh, the Western Fair for a weekend there. Now, if you saw, if you heard all the kerfuffle about this, there's been a little uh, flurry of editorials in the London Free Press and articles talking about it. And, of course, behind the whole issue and the complaint and the, and the potential charges is none other than the infamous Megan Walker, who ha has been London's anti-sex crusader for quite a while. And I've talked about her on this show before. And, of course, she used to be the co-host on uh, CJBK's uh, open line show in the morning for quite a few years with her husband, Morris Dallacosta. And I used to be a regular caller into the show. So we got to know each other quite well over the years. And this was a subject we discussed one-on-one, -on -one, and I was used to wonder at her strangely, uh, almost seemed like a right-wing attitude towards sex, not the left-wing attitude that you usually associate. But uh, she was on that station again the other day, and I just couldn't believe what she had said in an interview with Sean Ray on the CJBK. I think this was yesterday or the day before. And I, it, it was just stunning. Every, every sentence told a story. And... Uh, 
here's the story. I want to just go through what Megan Walker actually said on the radio. And, and she, here she is. She's, uh, she's attacking these people that put on this, uh, this sex show at the Western Fair over a weekend. And uh, she said, well, you know, they shouldn't have licensed it, etc., etc. And then she's trying to explain her position on the radio. And she says, quote, first of all, there's a website, and it talks about what's going on, and this business is not new. They've had this going on in Toronto in the past, and so it's pretty easy to find out what they're doing. She thinks there were a few mistakes made at the very outset of this. First of all, the City of London did give the organization a peddler's license, so they could sell their wares, lingerie, sex toys, and things like that. But given they have a history, says, says Megan Walker, I think some due diligence should have been done about what might be going on there beyond just a simple peddler's license. It's not just a trade show. There's a history. She kept repeating that word. There's a history. There's a history. And the history, of course, is that the city of Toronto has done this and they do some pretty wild things up there on stage because we have a different community standard in London than they have in Toronto, and Megan thinks that that is a good thing. Here in London, quote, she says, we have an adult entertainment bylaw which says there can only be strip clubs in certain locations, and when one closes down, you can't reopen another one. That's the community standard we have here in this community, and that's a good thing, and the people of London wanted that. don't know where she possibly thinks that, but what happened at the Western Fair wasn't just a trade show. They had, for instance, something called a dungeon stage, where women were bound and wearing virtually nothing with hanging tassels on their nipples and a thong, and they were bound up on stage with men whipping them, and that's not consistent with a trade show, says, uh, says Megan Walker. You need an adult entertainment license to do that. So it's not because we're prudes, she says, and it's not because we don't enjoy sex or because we want to impose our morals on someone else. It's because we have a community standard. If you're going to do things like that, you need a special license, and they don't have that license. They were also showing pornographic videos on flat-screen televisions in one of the videos, as was explained to me. By the way, she wasn't there, of course. was of women being forced to have oral sex by having their hair pulled. That's not a trade show. That's something you don't even see in an adult entertainment f facility. Pornographic movies aren't shown at strip clubs, for instance. They had another show where they called people up from the audience and asked them to simulate their favorite sex positions. Not naked, but they were given a blow-up doll. Like, these aren't things you would normally see at a trade show, she says. I don't know about you, but every trade show I've been to has people demonstrating the product, sometimes in entertaining ways, but I'm sure we don't insist on their getting an entertainment license to be able to tell us jokes and demonstrate the, you know, how sharp the knife cuts, but although that could be under a restricted weapon thing by now, who knows. But she also says that there were allegations given to us that men were masturbating publicly, so these are serious concerns that need to be addressed, she said. Says she spoke with Hugh Mitchell, the chief operating executive of the Western Fair, and called Cheryl Miller, who's on the board of governors of the Western Fair. Can you just see her getting on the phone that day? And discuss this with her. She was as, as appalled as I was. Yeah, I, the two of them are always appalled together on these things. Uh, I work in a business where women are violated, says Megan Walker, although I'm sure she didn't mean it to sound like that. <laughs> I work in a business where women are violated. Is that your business? No, it's not, of course. Uh, I don't want to go and see women violated. My colleague Kate Wiggins from Women's Community House also re received complaints. Both of us called the police. There's the confession. I was reading in the paper that they weren't sure who actually did the calling and that there were rumors, but she confessed right on the air. It was Megan Walker. She did it.
and I guess Kate Wiggins, the same duo, <laughs> and also called Hugh Mitchell, also called Gary McRae from the Western Fair Association, and spoke to Cheryl Miller. My job is not to investigate, says Walker. My job is to take in a complaint and advise people as to what I've heard and leave the investigating to them. When people say to me that it's their choice to be there, I don't believe that either. Now here's where it gets real interesting. Quote, women don't choose. Oftentimes, women are forced into professions that they have no choice. Their choice is to feed their families or have their families go hungry. That's not a choice. <laughs> now, does that choice not exist, whether there's a trade show there or not? How does that change anything with regard to that? Not, I, can't, I don't get the connection. So if people want to learn, here, this is her talking again, about how to have kinky sex, I don't think they should be learning at a family events building in the city of London, which is unlicensed to teach them that. Now, you need a teacher's license, okay? I mean, they had seminars where they were teaching people things which are not appropriate to be taught in a family events building without a license. <laughs> so it's okay to be in a family events building if you've got the license, okay? I don't even want to talk about it on the radio, she says. Is that, is that a little bit uh, disingenuous or what? It was so disturbing to me what they were teaching people. A peddler's license does not give you the authority to run sex shows on stage, and a peddler's license should not have been given in this case, given the history this organization has. When there's a history in other communities that have different community standards than ours... They would never have gotten an adult entertainment license in London. You have to go to City Hall for that. When they closed the fabulous forum on Piccadilly, they did not give anyone else an entertainment license to reopen it in that location. So they would have not gotten an, enter an adult entertainment license. Toronto has a different community standard, but here, Cheryl Miller deserves a lot of credit. Cheryl Miller and Susan Eagle spearheaded a lot of the good work we have in this community around women's issues. They were both very aggressive in pursuing the adult entertainment bylaws, and that's why I called Cheryl, and she's, she's right. This is not a moral issue. <laughs> Boy. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. This is about violating a bylaw. Uh-huh. Was a bylaw violated? If it was, people need to be held accountable for that. So... Just the complete hypocrisy of the whole deal. I mean, you, the description of the sex acts that she never saw, she just went on and on. I didn't even read the whole thing, but you could tell she was just up in a froth about this. But what was interesting was listening to the callers that called in afterward and looking at all, all of the letters to the editor. And I, once again, she stands alone on this issue. And then once again, it's mostly women who are opposed to her. And uh, you can see it there. It's, uh, you know, it had a couple there. One woman called in. She says she was there nine hours on Saturday and spent half the day Sunday. It was awesome, she says. Lots of fun, all kinds of vendors, tons of activities and products described. The stages discussed were behind a curtain. All that was curtained off. The stripper competition featured no nudity, she said. And the rules clearly stated that you're not, there's not allowed to be any nudity or you're disqualified. That's their own rules, okay? So if they did that, then they broke their own show rules as well as community standards. And then she says, you know, part of my thought on this is that the city has closed a lot of adult stores and removed a lot of our ability to look at things and find out what's going on and get some degree of exposure outside of the Internet locally. It's nice to have at least one weekend a year when people can go out and take their honey and go shopping and have some fun that's appropriate to them. And she points out how, of course, admission was $15 a head, not particularly cheap, and you had to be 19 to get in. Another woman called in, said her name was Maggie. She says the government has to take a step back. She didn't have any problem with that kind of show. She didn't go, but she's definitely going next time when they come back, if they do after this. 
And uh, she says if they didn't get a proper license, they should have gotten one. But I don't think she heard, heard the whole description. You can't get one here. This city has created a situation where that kind of entertainment is only allowed on a handful of designated zones. And that's pretty well where the strip clubs are right now. The ones that were, um, what do you call it, grandfathered in when all these uh, restrictive laws came in. So um, basically they've handed the existing strip clubs a monopoly. Some of them might have already been out of the business, but you can't let something like that go, especially when you can't renew the business afterwards. But uh, that's just one of the, one of the issues. And uh, some other people called in. They basically said, uh, you know, a couple men called in. They said, yeah, it's great to have these kind of shows come to town and et cetera, et cetera. But certainly not the reaction that Megan was trying to get. Now, I can bet she's going to get together with all her city hall pals and et cetera and uh, continue her crusade because I don't think that makes any difference. But to say that it's not a moral issue. If it wasn't a moral issue, you wouldn't have the law in the first place. Why are you segregating this particular activity from everything else if it's not a moral issue? Right now, did you see in the headlines in the paper, there's a big discussion about the license fees for the, for the few remaining strip clubs. They've gone from a paltry next to nothing. Now they want 7500 bucks a year just for, for a license to operate which shows you that as long as uh, vice pays, it will be allowed, but if it doesn't pay uh, the controllers, and then they won't allow it. That's pretty much how everything works. Money talks, and people listen. That's about it. Hang in here now. We're going to take a break right now, and when we come back on the other side of these uh, very important ads, we're also going to be talking about uh, global markets, the economy, the meltdown, what's going on, and the election as well, because the two of them kind of go hand in hand right now. And we'll be back after this. I remember the last time we had sex, though. That was interesting. We're in bed, and we're getting all hot and heavy. And then I started to put my hand down there. <laughs> I read the middle of it, she goes, oh, my God. And I thought, I am the man. I am the man with the magic hand. <laughs> no, there was a spider on the wall. No, this is true. I actually thought I was doing something good. Confused me, though, when she went, Smack it with a newspaper! The ethics of social service the ethics of self-sacrifice is what is destroying the world today. Who is supposed to sacrifice and to whom, according to the conventional theories that we hear everywhere? Are the incompetent supposed to sacrifice to the able? The parasites to the productive? Obviously, no. The able and productive have nothing to gain from such a sacrifice. It's supposed to work in reverse, we're told. The able are to sacrifice to the incompetent, the productive to the parasites, the thinkers to the mindless, the healthy to the afflicted. In other words, the common denominator is the, the successful at living are to be penalized because they are successful in the name of rewarding the failures who get rewarded because they are failures. You could not invent a more anti-life code of morality. And the only practical effect it can have is to strike down all who succeed at life and thereby drag down the whole human race, as you now see happening all over the world.
And do we ever see that happening all over the world right now? That's exactly what's happening in the global markets. That's, a, that's the economic version of what you just heard by Dr. Leonard Peikoff on the ethics of social service. And that's what we see with the whole bailout. You know, when I last discussed this so-called bailout in the U.S., it was only a day or two before uh, the first attempt to get the legislation passed uh, was, was going to be tried. And that was just two weeks ago. And, of course, to everyone's surprise, the first bailout attempt failed to go through. And much to my surprise, I remember on CNN I saw Lou Dobbs say something that I actually agreed with, which was a total first. He actually saw the failure of the bailout as a victory for the people, quote, against the corporate elite, because the bailout would otherwise have, quote, destroyed free enterprise. Now, i, I got to tell you, every time I've seen Lou Dobbs, he's anything but free enterprise, and I've watched him rail against so-called unfair trade practices, against the injustice of the U.S. trading with poor nations who don't pay their labor what we pay ours, and on and on. That's... He's always talking against free enterprise when it comes to a lot of international issues. But it's interesting that he saw the bailout failure, the first one, as a victory for the people. When here in Canada, our left-wing politicians are all arguing that because the government is about people, it should do something and start the bailout process. Unfortunately, of course, both motivations come not from a respect for freedom and free enterprise, but because of a mutual contempt towards corporations and the corporate elite, who may well share some of the guilt here, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but uh, that's really what drives them. Remember, business, big business and free enterprise are two different things. You, can, you have big businesses and in all types of economies, mixed economies, uh, controlled economies, and uh, free economies. That's not the issue. The issue of free enterprise is whether you're allowed to enter a, partic a particular market. Now, of course, uh, oh, by the way, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you've got any comments to add. Uh, I was uh, looking at some of the articles that I was given um, last week, when I, or just a couple days ago when I was supposed to appear on, on the CTS program, and we were talking about the same thing. Notice some of the articles they sent. This was more on the scene of what's going on outside of North America in Europe and stuff. And uh, I see in Rome that uh, the German government lent them somewhere $774 billion Canadian to bail out the country's second biggest commercial mortgage lender. Uh, which they all promise to guarantee all bank deposits. In other European countries, they uh, want to copy the German and Irish account guarantees. They want to prevent a run on their banks. Does it sound like 1929 a little bit or what? And, of course, you, uh, you, you look at, in Germany, uh, Hypo is their third largest lender by assets behind Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank. Hypo got into trouble when its Dublin subsidiary, Depfa Bank, whose specialty is government lending, that's interesting, eh, uh, got into trouble. So they have about 400 billion euro in assets, and the government have put together a, quote, 35 billion euro lifeline for that particular bank. What else? Italy's Unicredit. Uh, We'll see the bank pay dividends in 2008 with 3.6 billion in new shares instead of cash. So they're gonna they're gonna put shares out instead of cash, which is basically what cash is anyway. Eh? And that's why we talked about money before on the show. The Netherlands on Friday was forced to nationalize the bank's Dutch businesses. And what's interesting, of course, the article concludes by saying it's an open question whether efforts to protect Europe's banks will work. 
That's for sure. It sure is an open question because I don't think it will. I don't think you can give a blood transfusion to a dead patient. But maybe that's where the prognosis is different. Is is the patient dead? I, I, I don't think you should be throwing good money after bad money. But uh, obviously, everyone thought something could be done. No one was happy with it, interestingly enough. Now, since the bailout legislation was passed in the U.S., I heard several commentators and financial advisors say that even though the credit market continued to collapse and the stock market fell, but thanks to the bailout, things would have been a lot worse otherwise. Hmm. What I want to know is how can they possibly know that? How do you know that? I mean, we can't do a Star Trek here and go back in time and then play it over, and this time we won't give them a bailout and see what happens. How do you know? Surely this is an argument of faith, because that because of the bailout, things aren't as bad as they otherwise would have been. What, what evidence can you possibly have to support that view? And I've got to tell you, I cannot recall a single incident of a mass-scale global financial crisis in which governments were not very actively involved from the beginning to the end. We've never had laissez-faire, so how come everybody's so sure it won't work? How come they're all so afraid of it? Because, you know, because they know that laissez-faire will take away their power. That's what they're afraid of. And, of course, you know, when they say laissez-faire doesn't work, the first question to ask is, work at what? Work at doing what? For sure, laissez-faire will not bail out market losers, which, of course, is the real problem that's being saved by the bailouts. Remember, a free market simply means a market in which individuals are free to buy or not buy the products and services of their choice. doesn't mean there's no rules. matter of fact, there's very strict market rules. Any other kind of market is one in which consumers are forced to buy a product not of their choice. So when you look at a free market, you can't say, well, you know, this is something we're going to promise in the future. The free market is both the means and the ends. Once you have it, you're done. You don't even need to vote anymore. Every other government solution is a means to some never-to-be-reached ends. You just will never get to the end. There's no end to socialism, no end to mixed economy, no end to conservatism, all of them, all the rest of them. Uh, you know, because, for example, it's like uh, the carbon tax. That's the means, and it's expected to save the climate on the planet, which is the end. But that's an unreachable. It's, it's ridiculous. It's not even a real thing. You, know, you can have your five-year plans, your seven-year plans, and, even, and if you're Dion, you can even have a six-month plan that you make up while you're sitting in front of an, an all-candidates debate, leadership debate. Another interesting observation I had was that oil prices uh, were down. This was uh, just after the bailout or the bailout failure. Uh, oil prices went down, and I think at that time it was a buck ten a liter uh, for gas. But uh, a news article, or news re business report on September 30th, that's when this was, uh, reported, quote, oil prices are down on worries that the e economic crisis in the U.S. will lower the demand for oil. So, in other words, prices dropped because of worrying? What's the other word for that? Speculation, maybe? <laughs> so how come nobody complains about the mechanism of the marketplace when it causes prices to drop? But everyone complains about the same mechanism when prices rise. The answer? Greed. Except the greedy will call you greedy even if you don't want to take money from anybody, but just keep your own money, which is basically the moral policy of all the left-wing parties. They want to take the other guy's money.
And of course, oil prices dropping also cause another chain effect, and that's they cause uh, the stock market to go down because a lot of oil stocks make up a large part of the stock trading. It also goes to show, as I've tried repeatedly in the past to stress, how much inflation of the credit market, and hence the money supply, has caused the price of gas at the pumps to go up. If you've got more dollars chasing the same number or fewer liters and gallons of gas, you're going to have uh, higher prices. And if you've got fewer dollars, which is what happened when the market went down, um, the price dropped. And that's now, that, now when they pump it full, pump the market full of all this you know, cash they're going to print, the price has to go up because you've got more dollars chasing the same amount of goods. And uh, the, the danger in this, of course, is people don't understand that. They'll blame the businesses. Everything's going to go up. Natural gas is going up by 10%. We just got an announcement. That, again, is part of the dollar actually going down in value. So, uh, you know, that's something you have to certainly take into consideration. More dollars chasing the same number of fewer goods. To say nothing, of course, of what's happened to housing prices in the States, which, of course, is where the bubble had to burst first. So I'm going to take a quick break, come back after this break, and talk about the election and how it relates to this whole economic mess. And the first person you're going to hear right now, again, is Milton Friedman talking about the Keynesian approach to government and the economy, which of course is what uh, four of the parties are more or less advocating right now. Here's Milton Friedman. In America, the new Roosevelt administration adopted the Keynesian approach. It authorized massive spending on government projects. It involved government increasingly in the running of the economy. It developed programs designed to provide security for every individual. In England, too, the idea that only government could bolster the economy was firmly established, as this film of the time makes clear. With the assistance of the national government, work was restarted on the Great Cunada 534, and we all hope that this is a prelude to a period of increasing prosperity in the industry. Exports of cotton goods to India have increased, and as a result of the quota system in the colonies, which the national government introduced in order to diminish the dangers of Japanese competition, exports of cotton goods to those colonies have been more than doubled. One of the most important contributions which the national government has made towards the improvement of social conditions has been a housing campaign without parallel in our history. Though some of these measures may have been useful, and indeed needed, during the Depression years, the length to which they have since been carried would have horrified Keynes. Keynes died in 1946. I have always regarded it as a tragedy that he did not live another decade. He was the one man who had the standing, the personality, the force of character, to persuade his disciples not to carry too far some ideas which were good for the 1930s, but which did not apply in the post-war situation. That he might have done so is suggested by an article he wrote just before his death, the last article he ever wrote published after his death. In that article, he expressed strong reservations about the lengths to which some of his disciples had been carrying his ideas. If he had been able, if he had lived another decade, 
the post-war inflationary explosion might have been avoided. I will give you an example of your laissez-faire, I don't care approach. Each time we have asked you to do something about the manufacturing sector in the house, you were answering, well, the economy will create jobs elsewhere. To have a strong economy, you need to have a strong manufacturing sector. Okay. You need to build that on a strong okay. manufacturing sector, and the liberal plan is about that. Mr. Duceppe, <coughs> and we'll give I, Mr. I, I never said we respond. have to raise taxes. I said that you have to stop making fiscal gifts to the rich oil company. This is another story. This year it's two million. Uh, two billion three hundred fifty million dollars and I think one of the biggest ever you're making is not linking environment to economy we have to apply Kyoto modern economies can be developed apart from the environment it, it goes together we call that sustainable development and your party and yourself are just acting against Kyoto against modern economy with all the disastrous consequences we'll be facing not only for the planet but for the economy of Quebec and Canada. Chancellor, Mr. Harper, to respond. Let's be clear about what we are doing about some of these problems. We've brought in tax incentives for, in, for machinery and equipment investment in manufacturing. Uh, that is aiding the sector to make a transformation. In uh, fact, the manufacturers and exporters are, are, are calling, for the, not calling for the extension of that. We have targeted investments in forestry, in automobiles, in, in the uh, aerospace sector. Uh, we have the Community Development Fund for Communities in Trouble. January 1st this year, we're creating the tax-free savings accounts so Canadian, can so Canadian families can save and Canadian families can save and we'll, and we'll create a, a pool of national savings to encourage investment. These are all things okay, that we are doing. I did promise Ms. May next. Go ahead. That, of course, was an excerpt from last week's leadership debate that occurred uh, here in Canada. Now... This is the last broadcast of just right before the federal election, which, of course, is this Tuesday. And Stephen Harper, despite assuring Canadians that their banking system is sound, which is perfectly true compared to a lot of the world's banking systems, and despite his don't panic attitude, which is also the right thing to do, he's nevertheless apparently suffering losses in the polls, although I have some doubts about that, but let's assume that they're correct. Uh, one of the things that might mess that up is that we've already had some advance uh, voting days, and that might change some of the poll results, but that's a long story. But why do I, if it's true that these polls are going down the way they're suggesting, why might that be happening? And I think it's largely, at least the way the other side is expressing it, because Harper himself isn't expressing enough altruism for the other parties, which of course is the very thing that got us all in this trouble in the first place. And not only do the other parties not have any solutions themselves, but the things they're considering will hurt and not help even the people that they're pretending to care about. What they really care about, of course, is getting elected, and they'll say anything, no matter how unreal, to get elected. I'm not the most emotionally expressive guy, says Harper. The main thing a government has to do at a time like this is don't panic. And, you know, aloofness, lack of caring is all the things that were levied at Harper for saying things like that. Uh, you know, when Harper probably cares more about the average guy than the rest of them combined. Do you really believe that Dion, Leighton, Mayor, Duceppe actually care about you? <laughs> really? Oh, man, shame on you if you do. Uh, I recommend anyone who believes that not to vote, please.
All of the, the green-red parties, you know, if you want to go green, the best choice is red, proudly boasts liberal candidate Jackie Gauthier, you know, London Fanshawe, liberal candidate. Uh, all of them insist that Harper has too much of a, quote, laissez-faire attitude, while, of course, Harper insists he's not laissez-faire. And once again, the other parties are wrong, and Harper's right. He is not laissez-faire. Okay, let's not even suggest he is, and that's his greatest weakness. I'm going to tell you that right now. It's not that he's not emotional enough. It's that he's unwilling or perhaps unable, maybe both, to defend free markets and capitalism, which is why people like myself and Ayn Rand and a whole host of true free marketers have always found conservatives, as, as a rule, to be the worst enemies of freedom because, you know, they're associated with freedom. They're associated with free markets and capitalism, even though they never practice it, unfortunately. And certainly they don't know how to promote it or even get excited about it. So liberals, New Democrats, Greens, and the Bloc are all explicitly anti-freedom and pro-government intervention all the way. They want high taxes. They want to ban anything they can touch. They're totally anti-business and profoundly anti-capitalist. And, uh, you know, from my point of view, uh, to me, that's all evil stuff. They're pure evil, okay? And they're proud of it because they lie and BS their way through policies. I I've never seen an election like this, i got to tell you. They just make it up on the run, and uh, their policies are always explicitly socialist or fascist. There's just no in-between there. That's it. It's always easy to say you're going to steal from your neighbor and give his money to someone else. You know, that's the political law of the jungle, if you will, using raw force against people in, otherwise, uh, in an otherwise consensual marketplace, at least to the extent that it is a free market. Now, former uh, liberal leader Paul Martin was in town the other day preaching his party's pure poison of government altruism. Quote, people or governments are about people. Helping people is what government is for, end quote. And then he said that the government should invest, quote, in research. And how this qualifies for short-term aid, I don't get. And in areas of great productivity and that we should help manufacturers with designated programs. No hands-off, he says, with respect to the government's role in the economy. You couldn't get it more clear. You vote for these guys, you know what you're going to get, okay? Now, this utterly meaningless and mindless statement strikes at the heart of everything that's wrong with our governments today. Listen closely to the promises of all the other parties, except the conservatives. Their political weaknesses are unique. <laughs> But listen to them. Are they running for government or are they running for an insurance company executive position? They all seem to think, I've never heard any of them talk about a government function, they all seem to think that government is one big insurance company, actually designed to protect us from the marketplace, which of course is us. That's us. We're the marketplace. We're the individuals. And they believe that, you know, in wealth redistribution, which is a euphemism for Rob Peter to pay Paul, and of course they only focus on Paul, when most of us are named Peter. A government big enough to give you everything you want is also big enough to take away everything you have, Ronald Reagan used to say. Unfortunately, what he preached, Republicans do not practice, but they all think that they're running an insurance company, and the great irony is that the hand of justice has you know, delivered unto them is that they're now literally running insurance companies and banks, all destined to fail for the very reason that they are not sound meaning not built on the principles of a free market. That's what makes a bank sound. That's what makes money sound. The power of your dollar, that power, what gives it purchasing power? It is free will. If you can't spend your money where your will demands that you spend it, then that money is worthless to you. Somebody taking that cash from you and spending it on something that you don't want or need is, is as good as burning it. 
even though there may be something of value created you know, of, a, of a lesser value on the other end. But it's not about a free market. So basically, we're all being asked to invest in failure, rewarding the losers and punishing the winners. And that is pure altruism in action. And the whole concept that you heard Leonard Peikoff talk about at the opening, the whole uh, idea of uh, you know community service, that's what we're doing here. We're going to all bail out the banks. That's our service. Government's supposed to be an instrument of justice, not social justice, which is uh, insurance company thinking. And, uh, you know, here we are, Judeo-Christian country, and thou shalt not steal. You know, hello, anybody out there? No. <laughs> Our governments only want to do that. So, you know, to me, economically, it is the government's major duty to keep markets free. I mean, we spent a whole subject, a whole hour on this subject two weeks ago. And that's the government's proper job, not the kind of intervention being advocated by Martin and Dion. And, of course, there's Elizabeth May, the true lunatic in the asylum. And I just don't understand a media who thinks she's doing a great job and has some great ideas. You know, she says the great danger to Canada is Harper's policies. And i got to tell you, if there's one attack you can't make, it's that the policies currently in place are exclusively Harper's. Look, at, he's been in a minority government, for, for goodness sake. That means there were more non-conservatives in the House than conservatives. They all voted for the legislation. We have yet to see a true Harper government until he's given a majority. And also, don't forget, we've never had a conservative party in power in this country. It used to be the progressive conservatives. Progressive, of course, in political lingo means socialist fascist, and it always did. So at least these conservatives, while they may not yet be pro-freedom or capitalism, and certainly not laissez-faire, are at least not calling themselves the opposite of freedom and capitalism, even though they might behave so a bit, which in Canadian terms I think is practically a revolution. Elizabeth May said the economic problem is one of speculation in the marketplace, which is, quote, non-productive, driven by greed and psychology, she said. And like her red-green counterpart, Paul Martin and Dion, she said that the government's job is to protect citizens. There should have been regulations in banking. We need regulation, regulation, she argued. Duh, that's what we've had. That's what got us where we are. We should devalue the Canadian dollar to 80% of its value, says May. We should stop the tar sands development. We should stop foreign investment. We should have a moratorium on foreign ownership, but spend money on the military, which should not be used in Afghanistan, by the way. And, of course, we should shift taxes to carbon. And then after politely calling NDP Jack Layton a liar, she said the first thing we need to do is get rid of Harper. She'd like to see a liberal green NDP bloc coalition operating under a liberal minority. I kid you not. And, uh, you know, this is where Harper and the Conservatives are losing a ground against all the stupid parties that are shouting, do something, do something, you have to have a plan, you have to intervene, panic, be emotional, think short term, and a host of other actions that amount to jumping from the frying pan into the fire. What can, you know, what can Harper do? Spend more of our money to get some people out of debt or to help others shore up their portfolios and investments? But doing the right thing looks like doing nothing to totalitarians and interventionist parties who think it's their job to run everything from health care to, to, to banking. The difficulty for Harper is to defend the morality and rightness of the free market of laissez-faire of capitalism, but, but by his own words, and he's not lying, Harper says he's not that. So the problem is that, uh, you know, when they do defend the proper principles of freedom, it becomes instantly obvious that their policies aren't quite consistent with those principles. So given his position between this rock and a hard place, keeping cool, calm, assuring, and in control about the only thing he 
only thing he can do, only role he can play. Trying to reason with the unreasonable is, is a losing game during a six-week political election. And that's why, despite whatever criticisms I have for the conservatives, you know, I still like the open-line caller who said he's voting conservative because they're the only adults in the room. But uh, I'll tell you, that's pretty well where it's at. My time is running out, so I just want to conclude by saying, you know, we live in an age where there are politicians who actually believe they have the power over both the economy and the weather. I don't think I've seen politics sink to a lower and moral intellectual rung. And at least Harper and the Conservatives have demonstrated that they're above that rabble. So if you, you, know, if you can't bring yourself to vote for Harper, then don't. But shame on you if you vote for any of the other parties, please. It seems unconscionable to me. And anyone who's switching their vote because of the weak stock market behavior is beyond rescue. You shouldn't even be voting. Stay at home. Watch reality TV. But the next thing you should do is make sure you come back next week when we will be returning and we'll continue our journey in the right direction. I hope you'll be with us. Until then, be right, act right, think right, and vote right. We'll see you then. Take care. Fading into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. There's more people here than at our usual elections we have in this country. <laughs> Actually, a lot of comedians talk about Quebec leaving. Uh, I don't do a lot of material about Quebec separating for the simple fact that Quebec's not going anywhere. <laughs> Quebec leaving Canada is like a five-year-old running away from home. It isn't gonna happen, okay? Like, We're gonna go now. It's supper time. We're back. You know? <laughs> and, and the simple reason why Quebec will never leave is the simple fact the Hell's Angels will not let them, okay? <laughs>